blasting in from the early 2000s is a film that no one remembers. I'm Ian. I'm Forrest. And I am Jacob. And today, folks, we're going to be talking about Titan AE. And if none of you remember what this film is about or has even seen it, it's probably no surprise. But some of you might actually be like, oh, yeah, I think I remember that film. Isn't that the film with the weird blue aliens and something blew up? And then you go, yes, it was. The Earth blew up. In all seriousness, folks, so this was my choice. Um, And the reason why I picked this film is because when Forrest first presented this idea to me about six months ago or so. Actually, it's been more like a year, I'd say, right, Forrest? It's been probably closer to a year and a half, honestly. Yeah, probably about a year, year and a half. You were in a coma for a while, so I can see why maybe that time skip is a little jarring for you. Sorry, continue. Yeah, yeah. well, is is that why your sledgehammer's a little bloody? I noticed that in the garage last time. It's red paint. Sure. Okay. It is. I helped him paint it. <clears throat> but um, what, the reason why, so when Forrest was first telling me about this, this idea he had, and he wanted to talk about, you know, these movies that, you know, led to our name, these eject reject movies, this was right, right off the bat one of the first films I could think of. And it's because this is a film that I think no one remembers, but it comes from a very, very specific time period, um, which I think is special to all three of us because we're all pretty much in the same age group where we were in our, you know, younger childhood, early pre teenagers during the early 2000s late late 1990s and um this film is also in the era of uh, all these other kind of forgotten animated films this is our first animated film by the way of probably many to come but um this is also around the same time that movies like uh atlantis lost empire uh road to el dorado treasure planet this is all the all of our um, other movies i could think of off the top of my head uh, emperor's new groove would be another one too i think they would kind of fall in the same category of these sort of animated movies that i think are really underappreciated and kind of forgotten nowadays and uh that's that's why i picked this movie okay well and i wanted to play off of that real quick of that forgotten kind of motif with this film I did not recognize the film, or, or I knew of the film, but remembered nothing of it until we actually started watching it. And when we started watching it, it was like nostalgia, like whiplash. This movie hit me hard and it hit me fast. I remembered that I owned toys from this movie. I remembered that walking out of the theater, I loved it, and my mom thought it was terrible. And she actually asked the uh, the ticket guy for uh, for a refund because she was, for whatever reason, so upset that it was such a short wow, movie. Really? Wow. Wow. <clears throat> My mom's a Karen, unfortunately. I love you, Mamacita. Oh, she listens to this. Jacob, go. I love you too, Lisa. Um, I, the, it, I, within the same realm of that, I actually one of the th- things I remember is I mixed this movie up with Atlantis. Actually, yeah. I I remember I remembered the trailer for this movie and a specific song playing that I will talk about later. Um, <laughs> but, but I always mix this up and I'm like, and I, I had been searching for years actually for the, um, for treasure planet. Actually, I think I said Atlantis. I mixed it up for treasure planet and um, I was looking for the trailer for it and I couldn't find it. And then watching this movie, I'm like, fuck, this is the movie I've been thinking about this entire time. And it, it's just, it, Ian's right. It's one of those movies that if you don't already own it or if you if it just didn't hit you, it's going to slip under the rug for you because it will blend very well 
with all of those other alike movies that just had more success, whether it was a lot or just a little bit more. Yeah. And the other reason why I picked this film, too, is because all of those films that we just talked about, I think the majority of all those films I reference are films that are um, at least within the people that enjoy this kind of era of film and animated films from the early 2000s, late 90s. Um, all of those are films are pretty much more or less universally considered very good. I mean, most everyone, I think, loves Treasure Planet nowadays in one oh, yeah. form or another because it's a fucking amazing film. I personally love Atlantis, Lost Empire, mm-hmm. Emperor's New Groove, uh, you know, uh, yeah, Emperor's New Groove, uh, Rodel Dorado. These are all great films. Tiny E is um, on the lower end of the spectrum. I, I really enjoy this film a lot, but I enjoy this film more for kind of what it represents. And it, it's kind of a, a time capsule movie in a lot of ways and sort of indicates like where we come from to today and the way how the animation is done, which is why I think it's more interesting to me as more of a, a, lands, a landmark, like I said, rather than the film itself. With that being said, there's a lot of things I do like about this film that we'll talk about, um, but this film is more interesting to me because of its history behind it. Mm-hmm. So I'm um, kind of talking about this time capsule of a movie. Some of the directors in the hands uh, on deck with this was Don Bluth, who you should be familiar with. Gary Goldman, um, too. Yeah, uh, and Gary Goldman, those guys pretty much made up your childhood if you're a 90s baby, and we'll talk about that a little more. Um, Screenplay, there was quite a few hands on deck with the screenplay, but Mm -hmm. one person in particular I want to talk about, because it's going to be a jumping off point, but Josh Whedon. Um, And Mm. I'm going to steal this from Ian, because he typically does this, and I'm just going to go ahead and do it, because what is he going to do? Stop me. The budget is $75 million. The gross was $36 million. This film... Yes. It was a big flush. Yes, $75 million for an animated film. Like, ooh, boy. And with how much like CGI and shit they used in it. Oof, big, mm. big, big, big oof. Yeah, and I mean, I guess we can just kind of jump straight into it. Uh, for, actually, let, let's circle back to that. I think we should talk a little bit more about um, the, the voice talents and stuff. Mm-hmm. Because um, that's a big thing about this film is um, this this film I really do believe so this was done by Fox Animation Studios this was the last film that Fox Animation Studios did For before they completely tanked and the, yeah. the and they and, and Fox didn't end up doing another animated film until 2015 with the Simpsons movie. I'll just leave that, that there. But um, <laughs> it was a good movie. I enjoyed it. Yeah. And at least I would bet you that one made money. Uh, I'm sure it did too. Okay, all I, I all I remember is Spider Pig. But moving Spider on from pig, yes, Spider Pig does whatever Spider Pig does. does. Can he swing from a web? No, he can't because he's a pig. Anyway, but. I, I firmly believe that Fox Animation. I love you, Forrest. By the way, I I I, I firmly believe so many that others. Fox Animation Studios really believed that this commodity. movie was going to be a major hit in, in so many ways, and the voice talents in this film. I mean, star-studded cast. I mean, we we had uh, the main character's name is Kale. It's played by Matt Day as a voice by Matt Damon. Akima, who's the sidekick slash kind of love interest of the film, Drew mm-hmm. Barrymore. Uh, Nathan Lane plays as the second in command of the ship they end up on, an alien by the name of Preed. Then you've got um, Bill Bill Pullman, also known as our president, who saved us from uh, the aliens in Independence Day. He is the voice of the main captain. Um, He's also Lone Star from Spaceballs. He's also more Lone Star, yes. more importantly. Yes, absolutely. Lone Star. Um, John Leguizamo. I probably mispronounced that last Leguizamo. name. Leguizamo. Leguizamo, thank you. John Leguizamo, he plays as the goofy scientist character called Goon. 
and then you've also got Ron Perlman and his wonderful face um, oh, is boy. playing is uh, the father to Kale and kind of like the opening scenes and comes in later. And then you two probably don't know as much about this this guy. You probably heard of him, Tone Locke. Um, yeah, Tone, Tone Loke, the rapper. Tone Loke, yeah. Funky Cold Medina. <clears throat> yeah. Wild and, and And I always That's remember you, Tone Locke. I know him. Okay, I apologize. Um, Tone Locke, I remember him because of his um, character in Ace Ventura, which is a major watershed movie hmm. for me. He was playing as a, a lieutenant or some, uh, the detective in Ace Ventura. But anyway, huge, huge stars to the cast. Mm, absolutely. So going off of that, once again, kind of circling back with the film itself this film tried to tread a lot of water and to a point it did its main setting off point was this was one of those films that was supposed to be the pioneer of end-to-end digital filming so being screened completely and totally digital Um, another thing that they did during production or basically the type of animation is they blended cgi and just traditional animation itself, which they did to some success and some extreme failure. It was was a blessing and a curse to this film, and I know we can talk about that a lot, but ultimately this film was a poster child of the early 2000s. Um, I feel like if it was a bigger hit, it probably would have spawned a lot more um, comics, video games... Um, novels, movies themselves. In this universe that we're referring to in Tiny AE is what you mean. Yes, yeah, most certainly. Yeah. Um, and to a point, they had plans to do that. It never took off because, once again, this film was a flop. But early 2000s, so this film was in that, that same kind of um, realm as as we've talked about with Atlantis or Emperor's New Groove, where I think it, it defined that that early animation kind of period in the 2000s. It also did a lot of things that really, really made me love this film. Um, the casting, uh, the the characters, the character design and animation. Um, the the soundtrack itself was the mm. perfect soundtrack for anything <laughs> 2000s. Yes, this was the, also like Jack Frost, 2000 the, threw up all over this movie. The, the, yeah. sound, the soundtrack was definitely it. So that that's part of the problem for me when you use when you're using popular music at the time is you're definitely dating your movie. Oh yeah. And going back and watching this, you're seeing all of the influence of the the grunginess of music of that time, the new metal music of that time, fucking Creed, which they didn't make it into the movie, thankfully, but they did make it that's the the trailer that I saw had Creed in it, which I'm not going to say is part of the reason why it did not um, sell very well. But I would I would guess because Creed was so polarizing at that time. You either loved Creed or you fucking hated them. And like I said, I don't think that had anything to do with it. But Creed, the Take Me Higher was on the fucking. Can you take me higher? Yeah, yeah. But the oh, music goodness. the music made me laugh a shit ton because like I said the problem with it is if you use music that's popular at the time and don't write your don't compose your own music you date yourself and this movie dates itself with the music yeah it was a blast and that's a past. great point yeah it's a total it's not necessarily a bad thing it's not it's this movie this movie had good music but it just you're dating yourself we know we know when this movie was made it's very obvious just by the music alone 
Oh yeah, absolutely. And since you're talking about Creed and and the commercial and stuff like that, we've been talking about how this movie was. So so yeah, this movie we're talking about animation. This movie is was was fucking expensive for this time absolutely. period, especially for an anime film. And, and the more research I did on this film, and uh, since again I, I have to keep on circling back to talking about like uh, Atlantis and, and and Treasure Planet because all of these movies came at the same time. And the, <clears throat> and the thing reason why I call this film. A time capsule is this was the time period where you went from traditional hand-drawn animation that you were experiencing during like the Disney Renaissance era and passed all the way to the 1930s right so you've got the hand-drawn animation and then now you've got CGI seeping into everything and and the majority of films nowadays that are animated with air quotes they're not animated in the traditional style in most cases they're usually the CGI rendered digital animation style and and during this time period and this is and I'm a I love this kind of shit so this is a big thing for me is this film merged together CGI and traditional animation and it actually what they did is um all of the backdrops like the ship that they are on the Valkyrie um all of the the vistas anything that's like a background atmosphere kind of stuff environmental stuff all of that was done by CGI and if you pay attention you can really really tell because like this was in the era when textures were not a thing that was very well done, so everything looked kind of yeah. Play-Doh-y, claymation style almost in some ways. And then they overlaid everything. They layered it with the traditional animation, which is really, really interesting to me. It's a really unique art style, which you see in other films. Um, two examples is Treasure Planet. You see it occasionally in Treasure Planet. Mm-hmm. If anyone's familiar with Treasure Planet, the scene when they deal deal with the space whales, that's an example of when they did it. It's also newer. Yes. So Treasure Planet was better. 2003 um, or 2002. It was one of those. And then another one is Tarzan, which came out, I think, in the same year. It might have been a years before. And Tarzan was more or less traditional animation, but there was a scene where he's all running around on the tree branches and stuff. And that was all done digitally as well. Same idea. The reason why I bring this up and why I'm ranting about this <laughs> is... Tiny E took this to an extreme where the entire movie was done that style. Again, early 2000s, CGI is a relatively new thing. It's expensive as shit. And that led to make this movie the expense of a live-action film as a kid's movie. It also didn't help that Fox had already dumped $30 million into this film in pre-production because they originally wanted to make this a, a live-action film. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they're already in the hole to start. And, I mean, this movie bankrupted Fox Animation. Like, it completely bankrupted it. And as a result of that, that's why this movie failed, in my opinion, because they put so much money into this movie that they ended up laying off the majority of their um, their their studio where they didn't have any money to market the film. So they literally dug their own grave. And then rather than trying to get out of it, they literally just jumped into the grave and said, well, we're screwed now. Banking on Creed. Yeah. Banking on Creed. <laughs> Banking on Creed. Never a good bet, Get us folks. that narrow. And some of you keen listeners might have already noticed that we have not yet talked about the actual point of the story, the plot of the story. There is a reason. It's not really there. This film is... And Ian is cringing, but that is my own opinion. The point being that this film had... A lot of history behind it. it had a lot of fun details that I really enjoyed looking into and I think I enjoy talking about the film itself more yes. than actually watching the film the film's plot was pretty basic for your sci-fi fair um, earth itself is being destroyed um, we see a character in his family um, the father being played by Ron Perlman is piloting this big old life-saving planet thing called Titan 
We don't know exactly what it does, but we know it can save the Earth somehow, some way. Our main character, Kale, at this time, in this flashback, in the beginning of the story, is a little kid. The aliens that are destroying planet Earth at this moment in time are the Dredge. They are these big CGI, big bad blue booger-looking monsters made, made of, of, pure of pure energy. Because that's important to the story, I guess. Maybe. Possibly. Maybe kind of, sort of. Definitely. The point being, Earth is destroyed. Colonies of humans are now scattered throughout the universe. And it starts out with Kill, who is given a kickstart into saving the planet and finding the Titan, of which has been lost. And hopefully saving the planet that has already been lost, but recreating the planet somehow, or at least the species of humans, along with running away from the big old lightning blue booger monsters. <laughs> I And kind of going back to Ian's point, it <clears throat> the dredge is what they're called, correct? correct. So they're grunts, like, mm-hmm. they... Were to me, it looked like they were completely CGI the entire time. They were. They were. They were. Okay, so they were probably the thing that stood out like a sore thumb the most, especially I would agree. especially when I first saw them. You're right. Some of it, some of it blended very well. I think you said there was a part on the ship where it was the traditional animation pasted over the CGI. The, the that, vast majority of the movie was like that. Actually, okay, and yeah. that and that looked fine, but it. I, I, I compared I compared the way that the dredge grunts looked, and I, this is this is really a specific show. But I compared them to Butt Ugly Martians, oh. which which was a show on, yeah. on Nickelodeon, and it, it was I'm pretty it, sure you and I watched that we, together. I think we did yeah, watch that, that one. Childhood. Together. Yes, that it one was it, it was oh it was terrible, but it was a Nickelodeon show that it aired sucked. for that aired for like nothing, but. That the the way the dredge grunts looked, I can only compare, and you can actually call them butt ugly Martians because that's basically what they fucking were. But it it just brought back that really bad animation, like C or CGI, and it just it stuck out so bad, which sucks because some of it worked out really well. Some of it I couldn't even tell. I think the very ending, the very ending scene, you said that they had the it, or the the cliff that they were standing on was CGI, and then the rest of the background was. Anime. It's just disappointing because it because some of it looks really good, and I wonder like I, I just wonder why it it floundered so hard when it came to the dredge grunts. Yeah, and I think you talking about the dredge and everything. So, so the majority of the CGI in the film was like I said, it was done with the environments and stuff like that. And the only times that they really, really like it was a hundred and like you, the only times you could really tell was when the CGI was used as a juxtaposition to an animation, like you're talking about with the dredge standing next to an animated human. Right? Mm-hmm. It looks weird. It's um, super weird. Yeah, and and that that was rough. Um, they, used Crap, it, I, they also used it with their camera angles as well. Anytime yes. you had those broad, s- sweeping kind of um, panoramic scenes, a lot of that was with uh, CGI, or at least uh, supplemented with. Yeah, so I guess since we're... I've kind of ranted on about um, why I love this film from the backdrop of everything. We should actually talk about the film itself, so going off of what Force was talking about. So we mentioned Joss Whedon, right? as a screenwriter oh man his fingerprints are all over this movie like i mean this movie and alien resurrection are the movies to me that spawned what became firefly and that you've got basically a cast of i know alien resurrection is bad but um you've got a the characters are a group of motley crew pirate type 
characters in their own unique ship looking to do a thing and that's kind of the plot, right? And it's Time got his eat. humor all over it too. They're yes. all they're the all quippiness. Yep, they're all, all the quips. Yep. And all the all the colorful, colorful characters, then none of them are perfect and they all got their issues. Yeah, Tiny E is all about that. I mean, all those characters I mentioned earlier played by all these amazing actors, you know. I mean and I think this is something I really want to focus on too, is beyond that, the plot of this movie, like Forrest said, is not great. Like I'm not gonna say this is original story. It's ultimately it's like Star Wars in a lot of ways where it's the heroes have, and I'm talking original Star Wars, New Hope, the heroes have to do a thing to get a thing to stop a thing. That's basically mm-hmm. what the film is. I mean, the adventure portion of that is, is just exactly. The it's plot great. isn't original, but the journey that it takes you on is fun. Yeah. And you can't and, argue with that by any means. And that's why the film works is because I care, as I've said before, I care more about the characters in the film half the time than the plot. Not always, of course. It can't be a super terrible, boring plot. But it, it's... I like this film because of the background of everything involved with it. And then I love the characters in this film. And I love the fact that the characters are unique. They're relatively multi-layered. They have, all of them have stuff to do. Like comparing Streets of Fire with poor Diane Lane. Like she has nothing to do in that film, right? (laughs) I would almost disagree with that statement. Okay. No, challenge me on that. I'd be interested to hear your opinion. Oh, I most certainly will. So let's do a roll call here. We have uh, Goon, who is the science person on the ship he does a few cool things he's a lovable character and i love the way he talks he's fun we've got kale he's the newcomer and he's basically the person to save the day correct correct we have captain corso he's the the rugged brooding character who is basically the kickoff of the main story all right Mm -hmm. also known as malcolm reynolds 0.05 or malcolm reynolds alpha we then have preed who is the first mate we have Stith, who is the weapons consultant manager. She's basically a big old giant kangaroo. Uh, <laughs> and then you have Akima, who is the pilot who has this, I would admit, has a wonderful little connection to the human element of the story mm-hmm. and a love interest element of the story. I loved her. Preed and Stith, I have a very hard time accepting the fact that they were integral to this movie. So I can agree with Stith. Because unfortunately, Stith was basically the weapons expert on the ship, and she didn't have much to do. Um, I think Preet had plenty of stuff to do. We can talk about his role, but I feel like they had set up the actual pulling of the trigger. It was a blank. And I, that, I, that ruined his character for me. I agree, too. And, and, and getting into more spoiler territory... Preed for me especially upset me because I liked him as a character. He was I, fun. I can I can see where Forrest is coming from, where it's I don't understand, but where I don't understand how he was super important. But when they ha- when he had the double cross the double cross moment, sure, where okay. Preed double right. crossed uh, the captain. Right, if you're going to do that. Don't make his death so fucking lame. Make it mean something. Make him die for some type of cause. Don't have... I forget who it was, but someone just came up and cracked his neck. Was it Kale? Corso. Corso. Corso came up and just snapped his neck. Did he, did he not? Yeah. Yes, maybe he did. paint that picture for us because... We we just jump straight to the, yes. the right. spoilers. The sorry, there. Yeah, sorry, we're sorry. In the I last know, ten minutes I, of the movie. I know. Sorry. I <laughs> it just because it, it's ups, it, it upsets me so much. They go fair. They fair. go through this He's turning whole, green. He's got purple shorts they, right now. They they go through this entire adventure. Preed's kind of the. I think Preed 
as far as the humor goes and the 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 lines he says, he's got he's drenched in Joss Whedon the most. He's got the most. Yes, he's he's definitely mm-hmm. the most sarcastic. The like my favorite line is um, when Kale says, "I happen to be humanity's last hope," and then Preed just snidely remarks, "I weep for the species." Like <laughs> is a good that, line. Like that is just fantastic. But you get to this, you get to the end where they. Um, they find the they find the Titan again, right in the middle of the fucking ice planet storm thing, and you this big moment happens where because you know Preed and the Captain are kind of in cahoots and they want to be douches and blah, but then he double crosses him, he double crosses the Captain and it's like fuck, okay, big moment here, and then. <sighs> It's like you work so hard to blow up this fucking balloon, and then some five-year-old child with a needle comes up and just pops it mm, with I, Nathan Lane's voice. With Na- and it's Nathan Lane screaming in the back. It was Nathan Lane blowing up the balloon. <laughs> Nathan Lane blew up this fucking balloon just to have this five-year-old child come up and ooh, and then pop it. It was so frustrating because Preed was just made to look like this very important character, even though Force is right. He like. When you go in depth, he doesn't he doesn't really have much to do, but he was made up to be, and it's like okay, at least this double crossover gives him gives the, all of gives his character some credence, like why he's here. Nope. Okay, you're dead. Did you say Creed? credence? Credence Clearwater. Well, this was Revival? fun, guys. Eight episodes was a good amount. I'm leaving now. No, <laughs> no I'm just kidding. Um, but it it was just. That 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 super frustrated me, and <clears throat> it's also because I I liked Preed a lot as a character. So yeah. Anyway, yeah, like my my little rant that I didn't know I was going to go on is over. <laughs> no, that that was that that was beautiful. Okay, so to both your points, yes, I, I would agree that probably the Preed's resolution near the end is is a little lackluster and on. Un- actually, I'm going to say that there's a second one that is more lackluster, which is what ends up happening with mm-hmm. Corso at the end. I don't think that Corso's redemption at the end was very well earned. Like it, it was like okay, I see where he's going from, but the way it's handled was kind of dumb. Um, moving on behind that, um, yeah, and unfortunately, poor Stith, which was actually one of my favorite characters as a as a as a young child. Um, she really doesn't have a whole lot to do in the film. She sold the most, the most toys. Really? Oh yeah, because she, oh. she was just the coolest looking. Yeah, yeah she's a gigantic fucking kangaroo with an attitude. Yeah, and and big guns and everything. Um, so I want I want to expound a little bit more on on the the plot line that Forrest is talking about here. Is is you know it's 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 about characters that have a thing to get a thing to save a thing, right? It's is is I think we need to talk a little bit about Kale here and why he's important is because since we're talking about character thing is I really like Kale as a character because basically he has a ring that his father Ron Perlman, I'm just going to call him Ron Perlman, um, <laughs> yeah. his father Ron Perlman Hellboy. gives him Captain, when they separate from each other. When, when Captain Kale's, Hellboy. Captain Hellboy, sure. When when when, when the Earth is Sam destroyed and Kale is left behind. And the reason why I want to talk about this is because one, one of the things I really like about this movie is this movie really explores some interesting themes of um, segregation, uh, diaspora, and racism. And it does in a way that's not extremely overt, but it basically introduces the concept of humanity as a species is basically extinct. And it's just the survivors of like a few hundred thousand people spread around the galaxy. All of humans are gypsies and we're the aliens now. 
and the aliens are the normal people from our perspective. And I really like that because that's interesting to me and it does in the way where it makes you think about it, but it doesn't do it in the way where it shoves it in your face like some movies do nowadays, right? And this is coming from the perspective of, I mean, we're three 20-something-year-old white dudes, so I'm not going to make any statement about that. Just move on from that. But I like that element. And the reason why I want to bring that up in regards to Kale is when we see Kale is he's 18 years old and he's this disaffected youth growing up in this environment where he's basically hated and treated like a leper by everyone and he's pissed. He's angsty, right? Mm-hmm. And that cre- that really generates a story arc and he does everything to start for his own interest. He's basically like, oh, you guys need me to save the earth, to save humanity because I've got this ring that my father gave me that leads to the Titan. Well, I'm doing this because I want to go on an adventure because I'm sick and tired of sitting here being a miner all my life or a scrapper. But he, there's literally a scene where he says to Corso, like, the instant things get too hot, I'm just going to leave. And I like that about him because he develops as a character overall. And I think that that's very important to the story. And it's very important to how his actions change throughout the story. And with Kale, the main character, I, I did like him, him being voiced by Matt Damon. He did a very good job. The character himself was moody and broody, and then he has that wonderful little turn. And... I think my favorite part about that is how Kale turned. You, you can almost see it happening. You can feel it happening. And it, it, to me, it made sense. And I feel like the epitome of his turn from a just doing it for me kind of thing happened when him and uh, Akima were on the um, the straggler foreign floating colony. Drifter colonies. Yes, exactly. So as I mentioned earlier, humans are now just traveling in these giant rust buckets of melded up spaceships that are called drifter colonies and it is the most humanizing moment when kale and akima are at one of these drifter colonies and kale looks around and he sees what it's like to be surrounded by an environment where people care and work for each other and work with each other and he, he finally this this light goes off and like I don't need to do this alone anymore. I don't need to work for myself anymore. I can work for other people. I can work for a cause. And that's great. Um, and that that's that then leads into probably my favorite moment in the movie when we get closer to the Titan and we start seeing this really cool CGI ice chase. Oh, God. And that ice chase is awesome. Yes. That's where that's a moment where the CGI actually was fucking great. Yes, because it was mostly CGI at that point. Mm-hmm. It was still that that part was very well done, which is why the fucking dredge thing still irks me. Yeah, I mean, talking about the ice chase, then um, basically nearing the end of the film, Akima and Kale are looking for the Titan because they've they've left the Valkyrie and the rest of the crew. Um, and we kind of gone into spoilers, but I kind of want to leave some things. That's fine. You know, me. unknown for people to watch because I highly mm-hmm. recommend you all watch this film. But basically, Kale and Akima are separate, and they're on their own separate ship, and they're looking for the Titan. And uh, it leads to this amazing chase scene in the ice, and it's so good and interesting to me. And I really like the, the the space physics in this film. It's not the most accurate film, but it does kind of approach the concept of like how actual space works and physics and stuff in a way that's very interesting. And it's basically the ship that is chasing them to find the Titan. They end up hiding in this ice field where everything's reflected, and they use the reflections like a hall of mirrors to basically escape from it so they can't tell which is their ship. And it's very Interesting. I mean, mm-hmm. overall, the action scenes in this film, I think, are very visceral, and they have a 
an impact to them when they're very grounded, which I really like. And I never feel like like many action scenes nowadays in films. I don't feel like I'm going to get a headache. It's because I don't know what the fuck is going on. And like the action scenes in this, as I always know what's going on. Yeah, um, and we've been we've been kind of going back and forth between good things and bad things here. So, and I just you explaining that just reminded me of something else that I did not care for. Oh, there's plenty of things I don't like either. Yeah, so. um, and one of my and it's not the main point of it, which is why I feel like it was just a little unnecessary. But that was the love story between Kale and Akima. Yeah, yeah. It now I'm I'm a sucker for a good love story if it's mixed in with like the with anything like sci-fi fantasy anything that I love like that I'm a sucker for that for that this felt completely forced it felt like they had because it felt like in in one in one scene she she was hating on Kale and then the next one it's oh my god I missed you so much and it just it oops it um it just it felt too forced it did not feel natural but granted it's not the main point of the story at all and by any means but that's probably why I dislike it so much because okay leave that out then if you're gonna force it down our throats just leave that kind of part out that you can not make necessary them, it's not necessary you can make them be close friends or any and something like that but to make to force them to become a couple or what seemed forced it, it's just it was unnecessary to me then I want to talk about a scene that I think all of us can agree is wonderful. Um, the intelligent guard scene. Yeah. Oh, God, yes. yes. Okay. I love that scene. So there's yes. a scene where the the crew has been somewhat separated, and we are trying to get to a certain point, but there is a guard in the way. Typically, guards in movies are dumb. Everyone knows that. They tried to bluff their way past the guard, and the guard calls them on their bluff, and is there's this wonderful moment of the characters look at each other like, oh shit, this isn't working. So they just beat the shit out of them. But that scene was wonderful. The only small little quirk that I can dig, dig on is maybe not put in that line of dialogue. Uh, oh goodness, the, the one and only intelligent guard and we happen to come upon him. I feel like they didn't need to make us aware of that. It's like See, they were. It's like they were explaining why that joke was funny. Yeah, See, it, it was still funny. Still it, loved it, the crap it's still, out of no, it. it's still it still hit. But it's like okay, just in case you didn't realize, mm-hmm. most guards are dumb, but this one was smart. Yeah. Hey, see, I don't know though. I kind of disagree with that since we're homing in on the scene because it's, it's Preet. Preet is basically pretending to be a slaver so they can get in, right? Yes, and 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 he he. He spuns this cockamamie story, and then the guard's like, you're lying, and this is why, and he gives all these details, which are world-building stuff for them to get into, but basically says, this is wrong because you're you're not portraying a slaver properly, and so on and so forth, and they all just kind of stare at each other, and then Pre just goes, on second thought, did we ever have a plan B? And then Sith just says, ah, here's my plan B, and she just beats the shit out of the guard, right? And and then and then Preet says, an intelligent guard never saw that coming. And I thought that was character-driven, because to me, Preet is all full of quips, and that's the exact kind of thing that he would do. Yes, I agree that it was also kind of them shoving it home, that, hey, we're doing something different. But we all caught that before he said it. I, I feel I feel okay, like I okay. feel like we caught we that. caught sure, that it yeah. was an intelligent guard before they pointed out that it was an intelligent okay. guard. It was almost like treating okay, the fair. audience like they were stupid. Oh, okay. the intelligent right. audience didn't that. get that. Oh no. Which I mean, this movie is for kids. Yeah, it, it is yeah. a kids movie. It was it was marketed for children I, I, at the time. I didn't want us to brag on that scene. I, we still loved it. <laughs> absolutely no absolutely but but you're correct and, and and i think that does highlight a good point is is i feel like and we and it's interesting is because all three of us said this 
um, after we finished the film, is we feel like this film would have been done much better if it had been live action like Fox was originally intending. Is I feel like if this film was made PG-13 or even R for that matter, and make it more of like a Matrix, Star Wars, you know, more of a more of an intense story and not make it a children's film and make live action, it might have succeeded a lot more. And I think that the children aspect really held back this movie in a lot of ways because it, it's not exactly a, a kiddie story. If anything, it explores a lot of concepts which I think are kind of heady for kids, which makes me appreciate it more when I'm a lot older. Mm, absolutely. I want to talk about someone uh, real quick that I mentioned in the beginning of this, but Don Bluth and um, Gary Goldman. Yeah. So... These two guys, they should sound familiar. Don Bluth, back in the 60s, 70s of Disney, he was an animator there. Um, I think it was like somewhere in the early 70s or mid-70s he 1979 left. is when Don Bluth left Disney. Oh, okay, late 70s. So late 70s, he left, and then he started his own um, kind of animation movie company, um, Sullivan Bluth. That studio then stemmed off and did... Uh, Land Before Time, Thumbelina, Secret of Nymph, American Tale, a lot of films that I feel like maybe made our childhood. Yes, definitely. 95, unfortunately, Sullivan Bluth then failed and crumbled. Bluth was still a, a goldmine of ideas and thoughts. Same with um, Gary Goldman. And they, these two guys then started the helm of Fox's animation studios and they started working on this film. I, I wonder how this film would have looked or sounded if it wasn't done by Don Bluth. Was he maybe the pioneer that wanted us to do this um, completely and totally digital film? Or was he maybe the person that, that wanted this to go from um, live action to this CGI animation combination? I, I, I kind of want to be like a fly in the wall back in time sitting in the... The, um, the, the spitting room, listening to these guys talk, and especially Don Bluth. I'm, I'm just kind of curious of what his involvement did for this movie. Well, I'm going to post a hypothesis based off of what you're saying here. So, so, so all of these films we're talking about, these were all direct competitor films to Disney during the Disney Renaissance, right? I mean, this was this was long before or or nearing the beginning of the era of, of DreamWorks, which we all now know because of Minions and you know all of those films. That's like you know DreamWorks mm-hmm. is competing with Disney now, but back in the day, back in the '90s and the '80s, it was Don Bluth Phil Productions is, is is what was the direct competitor for Disney, and Don Bluth left Sullivan Disney. Bluth. Sullivan Bluth, yeah. right? Thank you. Um, they were the in it. they were the direct they were the direct competitors of Disney because Bluth left because he had issues with the way that Disney was doing things at the time, which we now see nowadays a lot with the way Disney does stuff in the twenty twenties, essentially. Um, and Bluth saw it at that time, and that's why he left. So he directly competed with Disney, and unfortunately, he lost. Now, tying in with what you're basically saying here, Forrest, is I, I feel like that this was probably the next attempt by Bluth to take something that he thought was a potential goldmine, especially concerning the staff that we had for the voice acting, to try and get a one-up on Disney. Because again, all of these other films that we've been talking about were either DreamWorks or Disney films in the early 2000s. This is the only Fox production. So to me, this was Fox's attempt to get their foot in the door against Disney during this transition. 
and it failed. Mm-hmm. And now we see Disney does not do traditional animation in most cases. I mean, yeah, there's like Princess and the Frog and stuff like that, but like, you know, Frozen, Tangled, uh, you know, all the Pixar stuff, that's all done in this newer animated uh, um, CGI style. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And the, the, do you think maybe, uh, do you think maybe they were relying a little too heavily on the names? Like, a of the talent that way that was, that, that they put into it. Yeah, I think they rely too much on Creed. I agree. On Creed. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Well, I mean, fu- see, and that I know, was I'm and, that, and that was the no, but that was like going back to what I said at the beginning. That's the trailer stuck for me because I was like, uh, well, at the time I was like, oh, this is a great song. Looking back, I would slap my five year old self, but. Um, I would I had confused it for so long, but I'm talking I'm mostly talking about the actors. Do you think they relied too heavily on the fact that they had Matt Damon and um, Drew Barrymore in their movie when that is not a draw for children? The the That's only a good the, point. The only that is a good point. The only reason that I remember the trailer was the song. I obviously I confused it with Treasure Planet, but it's because in my head, Treasure Planet was the better movie. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's a movie. So that that's what that's what was super that's why I was so confused for so long cuz I'm like fuck, where is this Treasure Planet trailer at when the entire time it was Titan AE and you know, it just that's why it fell to the wayside. I yeah. think. Yeah, I, I part think of the so. reason at least they relied too heavily on the on their stuff but they didn't focus on like can like <sighs> Were there any big name actors in Treasure Planet or ro- even Road to El Dorado? Was there anyone I aside? I assume from- so. I mean, nothing's um, coming to my I, mind. I, not not as not big as Treasure. Not as big as Tiny E. I mean, I, I I can't remember the names off the top of my head, but I, I I can think of the voices that they had for Road to El Dorado and Treasure Planet. I'm like, I know that voice, like especially the female cat captain in Treasure Planet. I can't remember right. her name, but she's like a very well known British. Um, uh, voice actor and I just can't remember her name right now but not well, as big as Matt Damon for well, example yeah like and he was still huge him and Drew Barrymore were huge in the 90s and early 2000s oh, yeah. they were staples they still are but I mean especially then that was like their prime yeah absolutely but they were I, th- I think that they relied too heavily on and they were also putting too much um, stock into this new CGI mixed with traditional animation thing and they just didn't take the time to do it properly and they thought okay well with these big names and with the 75 million dollars we've thrown at this it's bound to be good and they threw their fucking putty at the wall and it slumped all the way down until it hit the dirty floor yeah i mean the marketing in this film was very poor um there was very little marketing and and like i said before i mean i think that fox just dug its own grave grave with this with this film as they put so much money into it and then they didn't have any money left over to keep their people paid much less market this damn thing and that's what i really think really made this film completely tank well yeah and they went for they went for you know and i would imagine at the time actors and actresses like matt damon and drew barrymore were not accepting anything less than fucking top dollar right and they were getting big artists creed regardless of what you think at the time they they wouldn't have done they wouldn't have had that song on their soundtrack without getting a shit ton of money the, the only the only band they could have chosen over creed that would have been just as polarizing would have been nickelback exactly mm, funny <laughs> exactly but i'm just saying they they put so much stock into all of this and where their money should have gone it went to 
the music and it went to the actors and actresses of it when it should have gone into maybe better um better gear for their to to mesh the cgi and i'm not i'm not like hitting i'm not like you know talking down to their animators or anything like that because they did a fine job but maybe if they had better equipment and maybe if the money had put put had been put to better use in that aspect we would have had a better movie and you know what maybe if the movie if that had been better maybe you could have gotten someone who wasn't as well known and that could have shot them into stardom instead of getting a household name like matt damon you could have got john smith from down the street who as long as he's obviously doing a good job but like you don't need to get top billed actors or actresses in your movie as long as your story and everything else is a plus well, I mean, I, I get why they have these huge big-name actors, because this is what, maybe like two, three films into the Fox Animation Studios, they wanted to solidify themselves as a big-name thing. So how do you do that? You get big names. So I get that. But, um, if it, but, it's, but if it's marketed for children, that means nothing to them. I feel like this movie was trying to be, like, straight down the middle. It, it Well-rounded for audiences, everyone. And it was probably playing off of the fact that Star Wars was then coming back in that in that oh, in this yeah, time period. So. Phantom Menace. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just... Anyway, I mean, sorry. going off of what you were saying right there, Jacob, I mean, any Hollywood producer, if you're listening right now, if you're looking to start a film and you just need Joe Smith down the block, you know, ring me up. I'm not going to give my number out here because I'm going to get weird calls, though. But I do have you know. some of his headshots, if you'd like. Ooh. We're all, we're, we're all here. And we actually have an Instagram that you can hit us up on. All at right. Eject Rejects. Awesome. I that didn't was know we had the that. weirdest plug we've ever done. That was unintentional, too. I intended to do keep it. Keep it, keep it all natural. Paint me like one of those French girls. All right, oh, let's move right. on. Yeah, let's, let's, I think we're kind of at a point we want we're to wind good. down a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I think here. we're getting to so, the wind down recommendations. I'm going to go ahead and, and go down the recommendations. I mean, obviously, I recommend this film, not because I think it's a great film. Like, yes, I have been talking a lot about the things I love about this film, but I really, the, the takeaway for me is I think this is a great film to watch. Well, you're in that binge for watching these nostalgic movies from the 2000s. So, like, watch Treasure Planet, watch Atlantis, watch Road to El Dorado, watch Emperor's New Groove, and then watch Tiny A.E. So that way you're kind of winding down. And I think you'll appreciate this from that perspective. Um, I, I think the other thing for me is going beyond the time capsule part of this film. I like this film because I, I really do like the world. I, I like the world that it created. I like the fact that it's kind of Star Wars. It's this grungy, kind of grounded pseudo-realistic world that it's like it's kind of a world that I just kind of want to hang out in and just see right mm-hmm. um, so I'd recommend this film but I wouldn't say it's the best film of all time I would say this film is the most important 2000s animation movie you have never seen yes <laughs> this movie is great to discuss it is great to talk about it is great for that nostalgic whiplash to watch i'm like holy crap i've heard about this before i've seen some of this before and then i've completely and totally forgot about it this movie it is a great little i think like psych study on itself of how it was buried and how you respond to it when you watch it again with all this music and imagery and probably some of these characters that you've seen before so i would recommend this film um, once again, I would recommend this film because it is, it is unique in the way that it makes me feel and talk about it. Not necessarily for the story, but just this this wonderful viewing presence that it had. Yeah, I can definitely agree with both of them. I would agree that this is one that you definitely need to see, especially if you do like movies that are in 
the same realm as Treasure Planet, El Dorado, Atlantis. If you like those movies, you're going to enjoy this one. You're obviously going to see that this one, in comparison, gets the bronze medal as opposed to these other ones getting gold and silver. But um, it it you need to respect it for what it is. It's got it's got good characters. It's got it's got really the um, the dialogue is fantastic. Uh, you get to see if you like anything sci-fi related, you'll like this movie. Obviously, and it it's it's definitely you'll you'll see where we are now. Like this was the starting point for a lot of other movies to come out. Now it's it's similar to um, not obviously to that depth, but it's similar to Phantom to Phantom of the Paradise in that aspect. Is you get to see sort of where a lot of starting points for things are when it comes to animation and where we are now. Okay. I got one minor thing I got to bring up just because I promised Forrest I was going to bring it up. Oh. So this is more for Forrest, but any of you who are fans of the Star Trek universe, oh, there is a Star Trek reference in relation to Kale, Senor Forrest. Please. So Forrest and I are very big fans of the Star Trek universe. I'm more of a next-gen guy. Forrest is a TOS guy, so he'll mm-hmm. appreciate that. The corn is... There is, there, is a to- there is a TOS reference with Kale. Can you remember it at all? I can't remember what I had for breakfast. Please do tell. Kale has a tattoo on his shoulder. It is okay. extremely, and I actually Googled this to look it up after just to make sure, and it's unmistakable. It is very, very similar to the Mirror Universe Terran Empire emblem on Kale's oh. shoulder. Oh, You're going to Google this now after. Yeah, I most certainly will. I had to throw that in there just because I promised for us I was going to do. Oh, tasty. Alrighty. Are we treading into Urban Dictionary territory? Oh, right. no. Because I'm really excited for this one. This one's Ooh, for you, okay. Jacob. Oh, okay. This is what you've had in it's store gonna for It's going to be me. a Creed okay. one. I'm calling it right now. Creed. Okay. So it is Creed. <laughs> oh, boy. It is going to be different here. I'm going to read the whole thing. You guys aren't going to guess it because it's not sexual. It's just incredibly that's funny. a first if it's not sexual i don't want to hear it no just kidding i can make it sexual please what please. i did in band camp <laughs> all right so i'm just going to continue on <laughs> so the title of it is creed the blurb the result of a bet between scott stapp and nickelback frontman chad kroger in which kroger wagered that stapp could never create a sound that was even more of an insult to music than his own shit band Stapp won the bet by creating an exact same band as Nickelback, only with the added twist of throwing in Jesus, Christianity, into the mix. Tragically, the shit fest was cut short when God, furious (laughs) at having his name attached to such mockery, smited Stapp, resulting in the ultimate breakup of the band. The little blurb at the very end is Creed was primary inspiration for Eric Cartman's Christian rock band, Faith Plus One in South Park. Okay. <clears throat> so this has absolutely nothing to do with with like Titan AE or anything, but I just want to I want I want to point this out. Mark Tremonti, the lead guitarist for Creed, is actually extremely talented, <laughs> and Creed did not do him justice. He 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 got he got really shown when he made his own band Tremonti and when he and he's currently also in Alter Bridge. Mark Tremonti, I know you will never, ever in a million years listen to this, but damn it, you are very talented, and I'm sorry. Janet. I am super sorry that you have to have Creed on your fucking resume. I, you probably enjoyed it, but damn it, I'm sorry about oh, that. Oh, crap, I forgot to make it sexual. Um, uh, uh. It's it's okay, it's okay. They, bu- they fucked themselves over enough. Oh, well, it's too late. I already moaned. Uh-huh. 
Okay. Ugh. Well, thank you very much for not ejecting these rejects. Oh, shit. Same and time, same band channel, folks. Thanks for listening. Bye. Love you guys. Bye.